Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So last week, our family got back from our beach vacation, and this is a trip we've made out to South Carolina for about five years now, every summer, and still, I have not convinced the rest of my family to watch the beach vacation movie while we're there. I mean, it's rated PG, it's fine for kids, Jaws. I don't know why they won't watch it with me at the beach, but so far they haven't. But I learned something about the movie Jaws from Terry O'Reilly's book, My Best Mistake. Some of what made Jaws such a compelling, thrilling movie, it came about because of a big mistake. So Jaws, of course, was about this monstrous great white shark. And when Spielberg was planning this movie, he wanted to make all the scenes with the shark in it look super realistic. He didn't want like little models in pools. No, he wanted it in the ocean with a life-size robotic shark. And so he went to different special effects people that said, no, we can't do it. And one of them finally says, all right, let's do it. But we've got to make three of these sharks. And I love... Spielberg named the shark Bruce because that was the name of his lawyer. So there were three Bruce the sharks, and they were 25 feet long, and they had to make three of them because they had to hide the mechanics of it on different angles, depending on which angle they were going to film by. And they were pretty amazing. I mean, the eyes rolled back in their heads, the gills would flap open, the body, the jaw moved all like it was supposed to. They tested it. It was perfect. And they were set to film at this space off of Martha's Vineyard where the ocean is very shallow for a long ways off. That we, they could have this track underneath it that Bruce the shark would swim on. And they get there. The whole cast is there. They're ready to film. They put Bruce in the water and it doesn't work. It immediately starts to break down. There are leaks everywhere. The pneumatic parts start to break and they don't know what's happening. And then they realize they never tested Bruce in salt water. And so it, wouldn't, it was fine in the pool, in the freshwater, but it wouldn't work in the actual ocean where they were going to film. And so they had spent $250,000 on Bruce the shark, and it was a complete loss. It was a big part of their budget. And they were on the clock, right? There wasn't time to build a new one. So there they are. The whole cast is ready. And Spielberg is in his hotel room rewriting the script so that they can go through most of the movie without ever seeing the actual shark. That's not how it was supposed to be. Originally, all, the, all of the attack scenes, you were supposed to focus on this big robotic shark, but they didn't have it, so they couldn't do it. And it turns out that not seeing the shark was so much more terrifying. It was so much more thrilling, right? Because you just get to imagine it with your mind. You get to see it from the shark's point of view, and then you get to hear those two notes, right? Da-da, da-da, da-da. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Thank you. You're so good, Q. So it was so much better, right? And this Jaws was a huge success. It was the first movie to gross over $100 million. And Spielberg said that he uh, credits the failure of Bruce the Shark to at least $175 million in ticket sales. It was this huge mistake that made the movie so much better than it would have been if everything had gone according to the original plan. Now we're starting this week a series called Mistakes, because that's how life goes. Life does not go according to plan. 
There are so many times where mistakes happen or other things happen that we don't think go the way that they should. And what we see is that God does not work through perfect people and perfectly planned situations. God works through all of these mistakes. God even works through times of disasters and never stops working for good. So our reading today is from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start with verse 24. Paul says these words, For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what one already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Now, I love this passage. Maybe some of you do too. It's a great place in Scripture to come and find some comfort, especially in times of suffering. A few verses before this, Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. He's speaking in this time of great suffering. I mean, you probably know this, that Paul was talking to people in the early church when it was a really difficult time to be a Christian, and they had known a lot of suffering, they had seen a lot of people around them suffering, and I'm sure they were asking at times, what is going on, God? Like, why is it that in this horrible world, the people who are trying to do some good, they are the ones who are losing, they are the ones paying the price? So it's like here, Paul is trying to show everyone, look, if you take a step back, at some point you'll see that God is at work in all of this. All things work together for good. But here's the thing about that verse. The context of it matters. And when we use this kind of verse out of context, it can do more harm than good. So for instance, if you know someone who has just lost a loved one, or someone who has just received some really bad news, that is not the time to pull out this verse to them. I mean, just picture it. Well, sorry about your cancer. Sorry about your child that died. Sorry about all, but it's not really that bad. All things work together for good. So I'm sure in time you'll see this as a good thing. Now you may laugh at that, but I have heard so many people who have received that kind of words of support. And it's always from well-meaning people. It's from people who don't know what to say and they're trying to offer some words of comfort. And if that thought crosses your mind, stop. It is not helpful to tell someone that their tragedy is a good thing, and it's all a part of God's plan. Even if you believe that's true, it's not your place to say that. So in this verse, Paul is talking about suffering, talking from his own experience, and that makes a difference. He is someone who has suffered for his faith. He will continue to suffer. He eventually dies for his faith. So that gives Paul a certain credibility. He has a right to reframe his own experience, his own suffering, which is different than talking about someone else's. So it matters who is talking here. But here's the other thing. This kind of verse is never meant to dismiss evil or to dismiss our pain. And sometimes, Christians, we get uncomfortable with bad things, and so we wanna say, oh, they're not really that bad, it's all part of something good. It is okay to say that some things are just awful, 
Cancer is just awful. Death is just awful. It is okay to say that. One of the commentaries I read on this said that if you wanted to translate this verse, verse 28, more literally, it would say something like this. In all things, the Spirit works with those who love God, who are called according to his purpose toward producing good. It's a little different. In all things, the Spirit works with those who love God to produce good. In other words, what it actually says is no matter what is happening, the Spirit of God continues to work with us to make something good even out of awful situations. That's different than saying, well, God had a good reason for doing this to you. No, Paul is saying, look, that was horrible, and God's Spirit is still at work with us trying to make something good come out of an otherwise awful thing. In my last congregation, there was someone who shared this story publicly of when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and it was decades ago, and at first she was feeling really down about this diagnosis, and the first time she went to church, a good friend of hers came up to her and said, God doesn't want you to have multiple sclerosis. And since God doesn't want you to have this disease, if you pray and if you believe hard enough, God will heal you. As if she was doing something wrong, and that's why she was suffering. So that, that's wrong on so many levels, right? But I love how she responded. She said, I know that God doesn't want me to have MS, but now that I do, I believe that God can use me to do some good. I believe that God works through all things, so even in this, maybe I can be a blessing to others. See the important difference in there? A chronic disease is not a blessing. It's not a good thing. But God can work through even those times to make something good come out of the situation. The Spirit works with us to do some good no matter what's happening. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is back in Genesis. The last story in Genesis, uh, the story of Joseph. If you ever want to read some good soap opera, you can go to David's story and go to Joseph's story. They're great. And what I love is that so many of us, we try to look for role models in the Bible, like here are some people to imitate. You don't find any of those in Joseph's story. What you actually find is a perfect example of what not to do, how to be a really dysfunctional family. And so it all starts with Joseph's father, Jacob, and Jacob loves Joseph more than his other kids. And he doesn't even bother trying to hide it. Everybody knows dad loves Joe more than everyone else. And it comes to a head when he gives Joseph the beautiful coats, right? It's this long robe that's so beautiful and expensive. And the problem with that long robe is not just it was favoritism. It also was a signal to his brothers. That is not the kind of clothes you wear out in the field doing manual labor. So by giving him this gift, it was the dad saying, basically, look, he's been promoted to upper management. You are going to do the hard work, and Joe, he's going to sit around in his fancy clothes and tell you what to do. And so Jacob, not the best father, creating this dysfunction. But then Joseph doesn't make it any better for himself either. I mean, think about this. He goes to his family and says, look, I've been having these dreams, and they're great. In the dreams, all of you are bowing down and worshiping me. Isn't that great? Like, you all get to serve me. Isn't that exciting? How clueless can you be? You're not helping yourself. So the father has some blame. Joseph has some blame. But then, of course, the brothers, they take it to a really dark place. And they decide, let's get rid of him. 
And so they beat him up, and he's left bleeding on the side of a road. He could have died there, but he gets picked up by these slave traders, and he's taken off into Egypt. And the brothers think, okay, this is it. That's all we're ever going to hear about Joe. Now, Joseph's life from that point, it continues not just to get better, it goes up and down, up and down. And so he is a slave, but then he rises up to this position of power, and he's entrusted with managing this wealthy household, and then something happens, and then he gets put in prison, and then he kind of rises up the ranks within prison, and then it looks like he might get out, but then he doesn't. But then finally, Pharaoh finds out about Joseph's gift to interpret dreams, and you probably know the story, right? Pharaoh has the dream that Joseph says, it means we're going to have seven years of abundance, really good crops, and seven years of absolute famine. Now, Pharaoh sets him free, not just because of that, but because Joseph is also really smart. He says, here's what's going to happen, and here's what you do about it. Here's how we, as a country, as a nation, can survive this by storing up all this food. And so Pharaoh is so impressed, he says, all right, let's do it. And he makes Joseph a prince of Egypt, basically. He's just under Pharaoh himself in charge of everything. So when the famine comes, Egypt, all these people would have starved to death, but they all survive because of what Joseph did. Now, eventually, the story with his family comes back to full circle because they, like everyone else in the region, they're facing this famine. They have to come to Egypt, and they don't know it's him, but they have to ask Joseph for food. And Joseph, at first, he gets his little revenge. He kind of toys with his brothers, and he ends up planting some stuff in their bags when they go, so he frames them for, from stealing from him. And then he threatens to take away Benjamin, the little brother, who is now their father's favorite. Which I love that little detail. Like, Jacob is still playing this dumb game of ranking his children. Now, here's my favorite. Like, come on, guy, that doesn't help anything. So they do that, but eventually it all works out, right? They have this tearful family reunion. Joseph says, all is well, all is forgiven. But then their father dies. And then the brothers start to think, we know Joseph loves dad. We, maybe he was just waiting for this to happen. And maybe now he's going to really get his revenge on us. So here's how it plays out. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, listen to this, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of your servants of the God of your father. Look at this. The brothers are still scheming. <laughs> We're... We're never told that Jacob actually says this. Maybe he did, but I'm kind of doubtful of it. Does it make sense that their father would tell the brothers, hey, after I'm gone, you tell Joseph that I didn't want him to kill you? Why wouldn't he just tell Joseph if he thought it was important? So they come up to Joseph and they say, look, dad wrote this in the will, but you know, he's not great at writing. So he told us, not you for some reason, that you uh, aren't supposed to kill your siblings, love dad. <laughs> and then Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. So they still think that Joseph hasn't forgiven them. There's something left to happen. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. Think about the two things that he said. First, and this is important, am I in the place of God? Am I God, right? If God shows us that this messed up family is redeemable, who am I to say that it's not? If God has forgiven you, who am I to withhold my forgiveness? Then he says that second part, what you intended for harm, God took and God made it good. Now notice this is just like with Paul, it matters who is talking here. That would have come across very differently if the brothers would have said it or if someone else would have told this to Joseph. Joseph has to say it himself. And I'm guessing he didn't always have that perspective. I mean, is that how he was feeling when he was bleeding in that ditch or when he was a slave or when he was stuck in prison? I'm guessing he didn't feel so gracious and generous about it then. And I'm pretty sure he didn't because when he first sees his brothers, he decides to have his revenge on them. So clearly Joseph was bitter about this. It takes time. It takes some time and distance to change your perspective on something that has happened in life. It's just a reality. But eventually Joseph comes around and he says, all right, what you intended to do harm, God took that and God did something amazing. So I'm grateful for it. Now that doesn't mean it justifies the evil nature of their actions. It doesn't mean that, well, tragedies just aren't that bad. Of course they are. But they are also part of a story that is so much bigger than just ours. So after Joseph went through all of this stuff, he's able to see, look, God was with me in all of it. He's able to see that his story isn't just his story. It's wrapped up in this story that's so much bigger of God bringing healing and life in the world. Even though they intended evil, God took it and made something good out of it. So the real question that matters for us is where does that happen in our lives? Where have you seen that? What parts of our stories has God been working to redeem? And maybe we've seen it and maybe we haven't seen it yet. Are there things that we have been holding on to that God is calling us to let go of or to forgive if it's time? Are there any big mistakes? Are there any tragedies in your life that they felt like this is it, this is the end of the story, and at some point you get to see, no, this is part of something bigger too. Now, it is not my place to tell you how to feel, and it's not anyone else's. It is no one's place to tell you what you have to do when something has gone wrong in your life. That's something we all have to figure out on our own time with God. I mean, all I can say is I know that no matter what you go through, God stays with you through all of it. And in all of those things, the Spirit of God works with us to make something good, even out of the stuff that's really bad. 